2: Welcome back, everyone. This is The Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and we're, uh, we're talking to a very interesting uh, gentleman. And like I told him during the commercial break, that his book, the way that he talks, the way that he thinks, and the way that he must have taught, have the three basic necessities, in my opinion, to what the world needs now when it comes to a book, a film, whatever. Entertainment, information, and educational, and like I told you, between the breaks, Stephen, you have succeeded on all three fronts, and I just can't oh. wait to see your book.
1: Thank you, thank you. That's very kind.
2: All right. Now, before we and went I- to the break, I kind of asked you why people around the world are still interested in the Titanic story, because we all know that at the end it sinks.
1: At the end, it sinks, and and what's really interesting is that when it sank. Mm-hmm. Um, I I hate to use the word globalism because it's got such a nasty connotation these days, but transportation and communication were moving ahead so rapidly that steamship travel was enabling mail, family travel, business travel, and immigration. Mm -hmm. So the world had a huge interest in not only Titanic, but the White Star Line, Plus, there were millionaires on board. And, in fact, one of the examples that I offer to kind of give it, put it it in context. Remember the Concorde? Oh, sure. The the supersonic jet that's now out of business? Mm -hmm. Imagine if on the Concorde's first flight, on board was the entire Walmart family, Bill Gates, Saudi oil billionaires Mm -hmm. and a few other random multimillionaires and the plane went into the ocean on its first flight that's how significant the sinking of the titanic was because you had the guggenheims on there you had the strausses who founded macy's and so ultimately the world global stock market took a huge hit Because the ship went down with all of these incredibly wealthy people on it. And so it wasn't, there was no real kind of isolation between Europe and America anymore. Um, There were the back and forth. I mean, salesmen from Paris were were coming over to, to sell to Macy's and Gimbals and. And people from here were traveling to Paris and Rome to sell to their stores. People from Poland and Ireland and Italy were coming on board to make a life in America. So the White Star Line was critical in keeping ships at sea and keeping this kind of commerce, both human form and goods, back and forth regularly. And the notion that this ship went down on its first voyage was just, it was mind-boggling. It was one of those things where people say, oh, I can't be, you know, I always joke, you go into a producer's office Mm -hmm. in Hollywood and say, listen, I got an idea. We're going to make a movie about the biggest ship ever built. We're going to stock it with millionaires and we're going to make it sink on its very first trip. They'd throw you out of the office and say, that's far-fetched.
2: Unless you're James Cameron.
1: Like you you said earlier, (laughs) (laughs) truth is stranger than fiction.
2: Yep. Oh, yeah, they throw you out of the office, except uh, unless you're James Cameron.
1: Unless you're James Cameron, exactly right. That's exactly right, yeah. So Titanic's sinking, um, And you know something? I've read some historical accounts, and I've read some history books about Titanic, and sometimes some of the researchers tend to take a position that Titanic was trying to do something extraordinary go from Europe to America across the ocean, the northern Atlantic, among the icebergs and, you know, let me tell you, the Olympic, which was one of Titanic's sister ships mm-hmm. the other one was Britannic the Olympic had been making the trip from Europe to, to New York for a year with no problems, none whatsoever Well, the, the biggest problem Fantastic. it
2: had was it didn't sink <laughs>
1: Exactly. And then Titanic was launched Uh while Britannic was still being built, okay? And Titanic sank. The White Star Line, they immediately called the Olympic back to port, retrofitted it to correct all of the design errors that contributed to the sinking, and they went back to work on Britannic, which was still being built. And here's a funny, this might be an apocryphal story, I don't know, but I've read it in a few sources that Britannic, its original name was Gigantic, and that after Titanic sank, the thinking was, you know, maybe we shouldn't be calling attention to the size of these things, because they were the biggest moving objects on the Earth, and that they changed it to Britannic. Some historians say, yes, that's true. Some say, oh, it's apocryphal. But, you know, it does make sense. And there, are, there is paperwork um, in the British registry for the Britannic, and the gigantic is on the form. So I tend to lean toward, yes, that's a true story.
2: Speaking about true stories, um, I have to ask you this. What, what was your favorite Bizarro U.S. law that is still on the books?
1: Uh, there's too many of them. In fact, it upsets me. I get very upset when I read some of these American laws and think, we haven't had the opportunity to correct this, <laughs> that people could still be breaking the law if they um, uh, have sex with a truck driver in a toll booth, um, you know, or or. Um, have a husband talk dirty to his wife that's a law that's a sex law in willowdale oregon a husband talking dirty in his wife's ears during sex is illegal and when i read these things there's also (laughs) laws about women can't women can't show their feet um and and that harkens back to renaissance paintings where they could paint a nude figure but they couldn't show her feet and so, you know, and, and, you know, I'm really glad you asked that because I have a, a, a connection to Titanic <laughs> very briefly. <laughs> Why did Titanic have one lifeboat seat for every three passengers? I don't know. Because, and in fact, that was the first thing the media descended on the White Star line about. And they said, you had 2,200 passengers on that ship. And you had lifeboat seats for 700. How dare you? How could. And you know what their answer was? No. Hey, we're in full compliance with the law. And the thing is, back then, the laws regarding lifeboats were written for ships weighing 10,000 tons. Oh, my gosh. Titanic, Titanic was 45,000 tons. They hadn't had time to update the law, and of course a corporation's not going to spend a nickel more than they have to. Of course. So they were absolutely correct when they said, we're in full compliance with the law. But let's play devil's advocate very briefly. No one, no one ever thought that a steamship's lifeboats would be used as lifeboats. That's right. The worst-case scenario was that a ship would throw a propeller or a boiler would explode, the ship would be dead in the water, any one of the 30 other ships at sea would be on their way to help ferry passengers to their ships using the lifeboats. No one ever thought the main ship would vanish. So it it's kind of you know, in hindsight, you know, we understand, but that was the reason that they didn't, never thought they'd be used as lifeboats, and on top of it, they weren't breaking the law.
2: You know, my wife and I love going cruising. We've been throughout the Caribbean I don't know how many times. But whenever they whenever they do the, the muster stations, man, mm-hmm. I'm the first one there. Mm-hmm. Because I want to know mm-hmm. where my lifeboat is. I want to know where I'm supposed to be in case anything happens. And my wife says... So you, you... She says, what and do you do that for? Right. I said, I say one word, Titanic.
1: <laughs> you know something? When I, w- when I was teaching my Titanic course, I had uh-huh. a, a student. Her name was Sabrina. And she raised her hand when we were talking. I was talking about the chapter about the lifeboats. Yeah. And the lifeboat drills, like you just described. Yeah. And she raised her hand and she said, I've been on 38 cruises. And I said, okay, time out. Come up here. I said, how old are you? She said, I'm 19. I said, how does a 19-year-old go on 36 sea cruises? And she says, well, I, I was adopted, and my parents are wealthy, and they love cruises. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting, but why do you bring it up now? She said, because on 36 of them, we had a lifeboat drill. There was no lifeboat drill on Titanic.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: They canceled it for a church service. This is why another reason so many people died is because when Captain Smith gave the order, mm-hmm. uncover the boat, start loading the women and children, which is a purportedly an exact quote, what does that mean? It depends on what side of the boat you were on. The left side of the boat, they said it meant women and children first. Right. On the other side of the boat, they interpreted it to mean women and children only. So a lifeboat that had 75 seats... They lowered it with 40 people in it because there were only men left on deck. Oh, my gosh. So, again, human error as well as no lifeboat drills, no training. And add it up, and you've got, you know, the most famous sea disaster. There's 3 million ships in the waters of the world, shipwrecks. Titanic is the most famous.
2: All right, listen, now we've got to say so long for tonight, but before we go... I'm going to give you one of the most craziest laws from Canada, and that is in the city of Montreal, it is illegal to water your lawn when it's raining outside.
1: <laughs> is that true?
2: That is a true <laughs> case, and I know that for a fact because I used to be a policeman, and that was no one of the laws. Kidding. Oh, yes. One day we'll talk about the crazy laws up here in Canada. Very good. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to the next time you and I meet here in the X Zone. Call 213 401 0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213 401 0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci fi radio programming anywhere 24 7 365.
0: You have heard of the X Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels. Free video on demand, live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simo TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simo TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, yours truly, Rob McConnell, Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, iHeartRadio, Talkstar Radio Network, and the Mutual Broadcast, and now on Trump Broadcast Network. Also, the X Chronicles newspaper is still available for you for the month of March, I'm sorry, February, March at www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. And you can watch the X Zone TV show on the X Zone channel on Simultv, and their website is simultv.com. All right, I understand that you are an authority on Stephen King.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Um, I've been writing about and studying King. Oh, boy, since 1987. 1984, I sold my first book, Mm -hmm. which is called Mayberry, My Hometown, and it's about The Andy Griffith Show. And it was actually an encyclopedia of Mayberry and Opie and Andy and Barney, um, and I broke it down into people, places, and things. Right. And my publisher, um, they said, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, I actually would like to apply the tactic of organizing the people, places, and things of a popular culture universe to the work of Stephen King. Little did I realize what I was getting—it took five years, full-time, with an assistant, to take notes on everything King had written. Oh, my gosh through 1990. The book stops at 4 past midnight. And the book ended up becoming the complete Stephen King encyclopedia, 908.5 by 11 pages. There's 18,000 alphabetical entries. And, long story short, all of that research, the King's publisher decided we should spin it off, spin some of it off into two Stephen King quiz books, which did very well with fans. And then I ended up doing the lost work of Stephen King, because as I was doing all this research, I was coming across things that fans simply did not know about. (laughs) They had never seen it. He did a a review of an ice axe for Outdoor Magazine, in which he mused how a murderer might use an, an ice axe rather than climbing on ice. And it's hilarious. And no one had ever seen it. Um, And I also realized that there were unpublished pieces and childhood writings and college writings. In fact, King sent me some of his college writings for me to write about in this lost workbook. Um, And then I moved on from there to the essential Stephen King, which is basically a ranking of King's 100 greatest works in order based on what I believe to be Literary significance. Uh, it is number one. The Stand is number two. The Dead Zone is number three. The Shining is number four. It the Stand. I'm sorry. It the Stand. The Shining. Mm-hmm. The Dead Zone. I reversed those. Um, and I did hundred uh, novellas, short stories uh, that could use an update as well because King is so prolific. He just keeps churning out books and short stories. And and the thing with with my interest in King is that. King is the Twain and Dickens and Poe of our time. He is taught at both the high school and college level. I did a course at the University of New Haven called The New Gothic Horror of Stephen King. We read The Shining and we went over his entire career. Um, Fans aren't aware of his nonfiction work. He has hundreds of essays in his bibliography on everything from guns to leaf peepers who come to Maine to watch the foliage in the fall. Um, And so I've been studying him for forever, 34 years now. And uh, I just finished a new book on King called Stephen King, American Master, uh, which is current up to the minute on on his work. Mm -hmm. And um, I I just think that King is... um, He's a rarity, and I think, like Paul McCartney, that we kind of tend to sometimes take geniuses for granted when they're alive. Um, And yet he's turning out work that in 50, 100 years is going to be considered classic examples of the literature of our time. And so I I read him. I, I love his work. I love his writing. Um, and I think he's an important writer. You know, King is one of the few writers in history who has what I call the trinity of appeal. He has popular appeal, collector appeal, and academic appeal. And there are very few writers in history who have had that. John Steinbeck was one of them. Hemingway was almost one of them. But King, he's taught, he's collected, and he's, of course, a, a, a massive bestseller. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty unique. You know, you don't, you don't hear that about, you know, Stuart Woods or James Patterson or Dean Coons or right. John Grisham. They're fiction writers. King is, is a uh, Renaissance man in terms of the type of writing he does. And so I've been preaching his literary significance since day one. And so, yeah, that, that, that's why I'm really into his stuff.
2: Fascinating, truly fascinating. He is a great person. Um, Titanic. What is your interest in the Titanic?
1: Well, believe it or not, this is one of one of those stories where I was offered uh, to do a, an opportunity to do a book on the Titanic mm-hmm. in 1999 when the movie came out. The publisher I was writing for at the time said, "You know, do um, you think you could do a book on Titanic?" and we could, you know, tie it to the movie, Um, not to the movie specifically, but the appeal of Titanic and people, you know, joining the societies, Mm -hmm. the Titanic societies and all that, you know, it, it spilled over into an interest in books. Makes sense. So I said yes, and yet it turned into a book called The Complete Titanic, which I personally think is one of the best history books on Titanic ever written, only because I reproduced in that book period documents from 1910, 11, 12 articles about Titanic, reviews of the Mm -hmm. ship, things that are never included in books that look at the ship. And so that that book did great. And then years later, 2012 comes, Mm -hmm. right? And what's that? That's the 100th anniversary of the sinking because it's on April 15, 1912. And so I was writing the Dummies books then. You, you know the Dummies oh,
2: books, Oh, sure, right?
1: Yeah, I've written four of them. And my editor at Wiley, the publisher, said, you know, what about a Titanic for Dummies? I says, well, yeah, I was teaching full-time at the time. And he said, I mean, you need to do it. Dummies books have to be written in 24 weeks, chapter a week. Wow. And he said, you have to do it in 12 And so I did, and the university actually um, approved a course called The Literature and Legacy of Titanic, and my dummies book ended up being the course text because I did manage to finish it in time to be out for spring 2012. And that book, the reason I took it on and agreed to like a 12-week deadline is because I figured, oh, I've got the complete Titanic. I can just pull from that material and do some rewriting and some new research, and it should be easy. Well, (laughs) that was really wrong because Tummy's books are done in a particular template, and there were chapters in my first book that just didn't fit. And so essentially I started from scratch, but it came out great. Um, It really did. And um, so I've got now two significant books to my under my belt about Titanic, and I give talks on Titanic, and it was one of those things where if the original publisher had not said to me, you know, would you like to do a book that we can kind of you know cross merchandise as the movie becomes more and more popular, and I said yes because like I said I was writing full time, um, and so it was one of those things, and I and frankly I became utterly fascinated by the by the whole the whole story you know it was the reason titanic sank is a is a blatant combination of human error and design error and my thesis is that if one thing of any of the errors or the design errors or the human errors had been changed the ship probably would not have sunk and that to me it just speaks to you know the hubris of mankind that you know we're we're just You know, we can do no wrong. And that sinking was the line of demarcation between uh, the Gilded Age and modernity, because once that sank, the world realized mankind, even though we're advancing like crazy with technology and shipping and communication, we're not God. We're not perfect. Look at what happened. And that was a a major league global wake-up call. So combine all of that with the, with the mistakes and the design things that were done for money that ended up sinking the ship, it just became an irresistible subject to me, and, and still is.
2: I can understand your interest, but why the rest of the world? And you and I will have to answer that one on the other side of this commercial break as we okay. wrap up this hour here in the X Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, and my special guest for this hour Stephen Spignessi. His website is Stephenspignessi.com, and the name of his book that is coming out on April the 10th Dr. Bizarro's Eclectic Collection of Strange and Obscure Facts. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we wrap up here in the Exome from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. back, everyone. Stephen Spignessi is my special guest this hour. And we're talking uh, to Stephen about many things, but uh, I'd like to start talking to you about your book that is coming out on April the 10th, Stephen. Dr. Bizarro's Eclectic Collection of Strange and Obscure Facts. Tell us how you came to this title.
1: Well, actually, um, I won't take credit for it because I didn't write it. My editor did. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the original, I, I did a book back in 1994 called mm-hmm. The Odd Index. And it was it was like a, 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 a stripped-down, kind of uh, less intense version of this book. And the rights have reverted to me over the years, and it's out of print now. Um And um, I was working with an editor at Permuted Press, actually, and he said, Do you have anything that can be expanded? Do you have anything that you own that you would like to delve back into? And the Yacht Index was the first title I came up with. Mm -hmm. And I said, There are chapters in the original book that are out of date and not interesting anymore and there is new there are new things i've found over the years doing research that would make perfect chapters for the new book so they talked about it and they decided to go for it and he came up with my editor mike who's also a writer he's one of my co-authors on uh i did a book called the hundred best Beatles songs and he and i co-wrote that but he's also my editor my boss um... and he came up with that title and he was the one who came up with the notion that doctor bizarro was this steampunk era late eighteenth early nineteenth century eclectic spelunker of cultural information and we we took the conceit that i was simply a handmaiden so maiden uh... you know what i mean a, a helper <laughs> <laughs> who was putting together Dr. Bizarro's files uh-huh. and expanding and adding new in the vein of Dr. Bizarro. So Dr. Bizarro is kind of like um, you know a, a persona of myself and Mike. And what we decided to do was present the book as being by Dr. Bizarro. I even wrote a biography of Dr. Bizarro. And how we discovered some of these newer writings by the good doctor, um, and uh, put this book together, which I think it, it's bigger, and it's got stuff in it that um, I couldn't have added, you know, 24 years ago, because uh, it just didn't have had didn't happen or hadn't existed. And um, so we're very very proud of this. We're very happy, and we think it'll it'll just fit right in. Um, with the climate mm-hmm. today of um, unusual information being readily accessible. Um, with that, it's, these are facts. And in fact, we, we made sure that everything in this is verified. 34 bizarro things people eat. Celebrity UFO sightings. Literary classics rejected as unpublishable. Bizarro physical things that can go wrong with the human body, Uh, euphemisms for dying, uh, invasive medical tests, the ultimate collection of Paul-is-dead clues, Uh, bizarro tourist attractions, um, euphemisms for alcohol, uh, bizarro facts about the Titanic, eight novels of a million words or more, 22 steps of a medical legal autopsy, the seven stages of the soul's ascent to God. Ten Day in the Life quotes by Mozart, 17 superheroes and their superpowers, etc., 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 there's 66 chapters. Um, And so this is truly um, a unique volume Mm -hmm. because other than the celebrity UFO sightings, which, hey, they, they claim they saw John Lennon and William Shatner and... Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, Mm -hmm. uh, Jackie Gleason, they all claim they had sightings and they described them in detail. Those, of course, we can be legitimately skeptical about. We don't know if it's true or not. However, everything else in the book is absolutely verified, and yet you've never seen a collection with all of this bizarro stuff in one place. So we think it's a pretty interesting read.
2: It sounds like it's going to be a fantastic read. So tell me, is Paul McCartney dead?
1: Well, last time I talked to him, um, <laughs> no, he seemed fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do a whole big thing on the Paul is Dead clues because I lived through that.
2: Me, too. I'm sure you yeah, did, too. That's right. Yeah.
1: And um, I have collected um, what I think might be one of the biggest collections of clues um, as to his demise. Uh, including lyrics, visual imagery, songs, etc., um, and it's a um, it, it's it's so clearly it was so clearly a hoax slash prank. Yeah. And yet, isn't it amazing how we can find things if we're looking for them? And it's all a matter of interpretation in the Magical Mystery Tour album. For sure. Paul's the only one wearing a black carnation. Now, if you proceed to interpret that based on the notion that the Beatles were trying to tell the world Paul was dead, it works. Yep. It totally works. The reality is that the florist ran out of white carnations <laughs> and only had a black one left. And I love that. I love that the, the answer is often so pedestrian and mundane, and yet it's a huge amount of fun yeah. to find these things.
2: Well, truth is stranger than fiction, isn't
1: it? Oh, it certainly is. You couldn't make this yeah. stuff up. You really can't. Um, and when you when you supply data and validation, yeah. and, and you say, you know, this this can't be true, and and yet, you know, and and, and a lot of it, a lot of the book, uh, people who are familiar with Carl Jung's theories. Um, and synchronicity, which is meaningful coincidence, as well as a police album, but it means meaningful coincidences, Um, you'll read through some of this stuff and you say, wow, this this really seems almost too connected to be random, Mm -hmm. and yet it's really up to the interpreter as to whether or not it is or not.
2: Exactly. It's all based on your interpretation. And the mind has a way of of filling the gaps with... With information that you do know, so that when you look at the the anomaly, it's very familiar to you. That's because you're filling in the gap with the missing pieces.
1: Confirmation bias. Ed, that's exactly, exactly right. We will interpret, um, and it's very similar to the to the mental process of seeing um, like castles in the clouds yep. or faces in the trees. Um, our mind tends to want to construct order, or at least generate order, mm-hmm. um, so that when we see chaos, sometimes we will say, hey, wait a minute, that looks like a, a, a horse, yeah. doesn't it? You know, and then the cloud moves, and it doesn't look like a horse anymore, but, and it may not have looked like a horse to the guy standing next to you, but our brain tells us, oh yeah, that's a horse.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I had a gentleman on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he took, oh, I don't know how many pictures of clouds. And in each cloud, he claims to have seen an angel. And yet he was a little disappointed with us because he said, so what do you think of my cloud book? I said, well, it's it's an inkblot test in the sky.
1: Wow. You said that to him? Oh, yeah. (laughs) How did he react?
2: Not very friendly.
1: Did he Ah, okay. You know, yeah, but, well, you know, but, people see what they see, they do exactly. what they do, they, they, they have the, a mission, and, um, you know, that that's a brilliant interpretation, of a Roy Shack test in the sky, yeah. a blood test in the sky, yeah.
2: You know, people ask me questions, and I don't know why they ask me questions, because if you're going to ask me a question, I'm going to tell you the truth of how I feel. hmm yeah, and after doing this show for 28 years, five nights a week, believe me, there's a lot of people out there who do not like me anymore. But,
1: <laughs> but what well, can Well, sometimes the truth hurts, and yep. sometimes the truth is hard to accept. And um, that's why, like I said earlier, I, I tend towards agnosticism. Mm-hmm. And, and my introduction to the Weird 100... Um, which is, uh, I told you I mentioned that earlier, it's a hundred chapters from, from alien abductions to zombies. Right. Um, and I discuss what this purported phenomenon is. And um, as I was reading through it, and, you know, you hear, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you, ha- you have credible people telling you things that you would believe them in any other aspect of life. Um, I realize, you know something? I, as well as everyone else, doesn't know everything.
2: Nope, you're right.
1: And therefore, shouldn't we err on the side that, you know, we may be wrong. We may not have enough information to come to a conclusion about what we're seeing or what we're hearing. In fact, um, crop circles, that, I, I came across an experience, a feeling when I was working on that book. I wrote mm-hmm. a book called Crop Circle Signs of Contact with Colin Andrews the oh, yeah. uh, world's leading authority on crop circles. In fact, he was the one who coined the term, crop circles. Yeah, we've had Colin uh, on in, the
2: show a number of times.
1: He, yeah, he lives... Oh, you really? Yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he is. And he and yeah. I co-wrote Crop Circle Signs of Contact, and um, he's the one who kind of put it in perspective for me. He's the one who taught me that over decades of research that he mm-hmm. has done on crop formations, he has concluded eighty percent are man-made Yeah. yeah. the other twenty percent that's where the magic lies that's where the the, the mystery lies how can twenty percent not be
2: explainable by science. Well, it can can be explained. It can be explained because those 20% are in England and the pub's not very far from the crop circle. (laughs) Listen, Stephen, (laughs) we've got to to take a commercial break. Please stand by. Great having you with us. ExoNation, Stephen Spignessi is our special guest this hour. And uh, his website is stephenspignessi.com. We'll both be back on the other side talking about the strange, the weird, the bizarre. Sounds like my in-laws on the other side of this commercial break. Don't go away And welcome back, everyone. This is the X-Zone. If you're just joining us now from any of our affiliates, welcome to the show. I'm Rob McConnell. And for the next four hours, I am your host and your guide as together we we go across this great big universe, the time-space continuum, to this place that I call the X-Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And as you know, the X-Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, iHeart Radio, and Trump Broadcast Network. Now, my guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Stephen Spignessi. And uh, Stephen is considered a world authority on Stephen King, the Beatles, Robin Williams, the Titanic, and other historical and pop culture subjects. His first uh, novel, Dialogues, was hailed as Reinvention of the Psychological Thriller. Joining me now is Stephen Spignessi and Stephen, welcome to the X Zone.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob.
2: My gosh, I got your information and you are a man of many, many different uh, sides and my gosh, you go from Beatles to the UFOs.
1: Yeah, actually what I and the reason for that is that I wrote full-time for 25 years. Um and then publishing kind of tightened up around 06, 07 like mm-hmm. housing and I went back to teaching at the University of New Haven for ten years and wrote part time But when I was writing full time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of th- uh, what a lot of unpublished writers aren't aware of is that publishers have a list of books looking for writers, and they have ideas meetings, and very often they will say, "You know we should do a book about blank. who can we get to write it right and um it's funny, you know, I did a talk last week on my one of my more recent books. And um, a guy came up to me and he said, you have an eclectic bibliography. <laughs> and I said, well, believe it or not, half of them were offered to me. And because I was doing it for a living, I you'd say yes to everything. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And the subject matters were things that I was interested in. Titanic, Beatles, Stephen King, founding fathers, U.S. Mm, presidents, yeah. paranormal. Those are the things that I'm interested in. There are other titles on the list on my bibliography that were, you know, paychecks.
2: I hear you with uh, that. I hear you with that, my friend.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up uh, having a very eclectic bibliography that is now around 74, 75 books.
2: Wow, congratulations.
1: Thank you. Congratulations.
2: Uh, Tell me, what's uh, what's your take on UFOs?
1: Well, I did a book, um called the UFO Book of Lists, which came out in 2001. Mm-hmm. And as research for that book, I was researching sightings and Project Blue Book, which I can talk about a little bit. But I had a sighting back in nineteen eighty-seven, eighty-eight, and that kind of triggered. And, and you know something? It was, I saw something that is the classic, it's the quintessential definition of UFO, it was unidentified. I was driving, and a silver, oval-shaped something, appeared in my field of vision up in the cloudless sky. It was ten in the morning, and this thing, moved across my field of vision from south to north, and I said, "Oh, it's a jet." I live in New Haven, Connecticut, which is near Tweed New Haven <laughs> uh, Airport. Yeah. I said it's a jet, but then this thing stopped, backed up, and zipped away and winked out, which is, as you know, a classic description of some of these supersonic sightings that Mm -hmm. many people have. So I took notes, I reported it to one of the UFO sighting organizations, and then uh, a few years later, I got the offer to do a book on on UFOs, and so I ended up um, doing a comprehensive book which is also coming out this year in an expanded, revised edition, um, almost twice the size, called The Big Book of UFO Facts, Figures, Facts and Figures. And um, that kind of got me interested, and particularly Project Blue Book, I mentioned earlier. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you're, you're familiar with that, right? Oh, very
2: much so. 1947 to
1: 1970, the government, the U.S. government, investigated UFO sightings, and it was because of Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting, and they actually looked into 12,618 UFO reports, and they were, they were able to completely negate 12,000 of them. There were 618 reports the government could not explain, and of those 618, I pulled out the 218 that were made by people that you or I or anyone would consider credible. Mm. Army officers, Air Force officers, radar operators, doctors, judges, colonels. I mean, people who you would believe in any other aspect of the human condition. Why wouldn't we believe them when they described this incredible thing they saw that even the U.S. government couldn't couldn't explain. So that kind of got me. That set me on the path.
2: All right. Now, you you had your own sighting. Yes. And and yet, based on the the book that you've done, are sightings going up or going down? Up. Really? In
1: fact, I I have a map. I do a, a talk on uh, UFOs. Mm-hmm. I, I do a bunch of. Now that I'm retired from teaching. I do a bunch of illustrated lectures around the libraries of Connecticut, and uh, one of them's on UFOs. And I have a map mm-hmm. that shows the United States colored in red, shades of red by sighting, and it's just incredible the number of sightings and how deep red some era, Non-political. This is a non-partisan color selection. <laughs> um, a a non-partisan red state which means that they have many and frequent UFO sightings that are reported. So, and especially now, you know, with technology um improving and everybody has a phone and there are some pictures out there, but the problem with that is that there is a, is technology. It's a double double-edged sword sure because now Photoshop can allow us to do all kinds of stuff and that's why at my talk I only show photos from like the 1940s, 1950s, Polaroid snaps, you know, black and white stuff taken with a brownie camera where there was no digital technology. And some of them are just completely inexplicable. So, you know, I've done a bunch of books on the paranormal and the weird. I did a book called The Weird 100. I did a book on crop circles. And I came to the conclusion... I don't know everything. And so I tend to be truly agnostic about everything from UFO sightings to religious manifestations to stigmata, um, things that many skeptics immediately write off as just, you know, misunderstanding Mm -hmm. of a certain thing, but um, I've just read so much and come across so much in my research that there is a lot out there that defies a scientific explanation.
2: I agree with you 100% on that. Where, according to your map, is the most heavily trafficked UFO area in the United States?
1: New England and the U.S. South.
2: Any idea why?
1: Like the, none. Uh, ask the aliens, you know. I, mean, I don't, s- I don't speak Spanish,
2: so I can't ask the aliens. <laughs>
1: Uh yeah, right. Uh we don't know. No. We don't know, but when you look at the map, you know, up um middle of America, up north, the Dakotas. Yeah. Not not so much. Not so much. The the color scheme for those states is very pale. Right. But then when you get down into, you know, Texas over through the Virginias and um and then up into the Maine, New England area, mm-hmm. um Deep red. Really? Deep red. Now, yeah, and however, there is one thing to keep in mind is that this map illustrates sightings reported. Now, a lot of people may have seen something but not taken the time to report it. There are several organizations in every state Mm -hmm. that just take people's reports. You can do them online. MUFON um, does them. And so this is a compilation. So... It very well could be the whole country's red, right? but then you get end up, you know, there are people in the states where maybe they're a bit more taciturn about what they've seen or they're hesitant mm-hmm. about calling a group or say, and saying, you know, I saw a, a thing sure. in the sky.
2: <laughs> well, all right, Stephen, stand by, sir. You and I have to take our first break for this hour. And XO Nation, our yeah. guest is Stephen Spignessi. His website is, do you have your pencils and paper ready? All righty, stevenspignesi.com and that's Stephen, S-P-I-G-N-E-S-I.com. And Stephen and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in our studios from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And don't forget, you can always check out the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 at www.xzbn.net.